You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Richard Davies, who, in addition to being a fellow at LSE, he is the director of the UK's Economics Observatory, and you're affiliated with a bunch of different universities as a result of this. And I'll ask you a little bit more about what that is. But of course, we're going to focus on this book of yours, Extreme Economies, which is, you know, fantastic economics journalism in a way, because it's academic in its inspiration, but it's journalistic in terms of its readability. And of course, you have a, a journalism background. So welcome so much, Richard, for, for joining today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Now, the motivation for the book, I think you articulate in the beginning, which is, and it's something that I'm very sympathetic to, I, I, I trained as an economics historian primarily because I, I thought that what we needed was kind of a unified field theory of economics. But in economics, we often divide the world into, well, there's the world that conforms to our models and then the world that doesn't. And there's the world of perfect frictionless markets. And then there's the world of this other thing. And then there's the economy and then there's the the politics. And I think you talk about how doing research on the extremes helps you to test out those more general theories and inform about what's going on in mainstream economies. You reference other disciplines. Could you talk a bit about that motivation and how you see it relating to other fields of inquiry? Yeah, for sure. So the original motivation for the book came, I guess, as a lot of people who experienced the past sort of 15, 20 years of economics have, which is just this feeling that we're missing something. So we missed the financial crisis. Uh, In the UK, we missed this kind of turning of the national mood and psyche against international trade, which is very strong in the UK. And we've had because of the whole Brexit debate. But I know in America, you've had a similar thing with the kind of raise of more protectionist sentiment. And, you know, are we getting a good deal from global trade? And and really, economists missed that as well. And so I wanted to do something completely different. And I had an an opportunity uh, to do that. And so I, I just literally went back to first principles. I started out at university actually as a medical student. And I switched to philosophy and economics after a year of that. And one of the interesting things from the sciences is that there are these landmark cases. One that I mentioned is this English physician, William Petty, and his discovery of the human circulation. One that will be more famous, I think, to listeners in the States is the case of uh, a patient called Phineas Gage, who was a Canadian railwayman who was shot through the head, this gruesome injury, which separated his brain. And the point is that these one-offs, so literally a single N equals one case, allowed medics, because the person survived, because the person was resilient, to find out something really important about how the human anatomy worked, the general human anatomy for the rest of us. And so the first idea of looking at the extremes I had was that one, which was to say, can I find places where something really radical has happened and yet the economy has survived and just to give listeners a bit of a picture of what i'm talking about and how i hope it's a little bit different from other approaches let's take a financial crash you can find a lot and that might be an extreme you can find lots of fantastic books about a financial crash for me that's not really and and that's where the money has become devalued banks have failed and so on the places i'm looking at are things like a refugee camp or a high security penitentiary 
where it's not that finance has crashed or the money's become valueless, it's that there's no finance and no money at all. So that's the difference. It's really like back to square one of the board of life. What do you do in that situation in those economies I look at? Yeah. And then you also mentioned David Kirkady. So in the world of engineering, it was Kirkaldi, right? The, the guy who was- Kirkaldi, yeah. Yeah. And, and he was basically, there's this, with the Tay Bridge, I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't learn about the Tay Bridge disaster. Or I don't remember learning about it, but apparently this inspired a whole movement in engineering where you, you know, basically stress test designs and so forth. And so this kind of presumably was the origins of the wind tunnel simulations and all the rest where we try to figure out how things are going to perform under extreme conditions. Exactly. And so that's a kind of second set of places that I visit. Kakaldi himself, an incredible person. And if you're ever in London, and once you're allowed to come back to London, it only opens, I think, once every month. There's a museum where he built this thing called the Universal Testing Machine. It's basically a hydraulic machine. It puts pieces of metal under extreme pressure. And he came up with that because essentially, and this is to summarize, 150 years of engineering in a very short few sentences. Essentially, my reading of it is we got too good at making things fast, hot, big, span large distances. And we started to have these terrible disasters. Probably the most famous one in Europe is actually called the Versailles rail disaster. And the reason it's so famous is because essentially the Parisian elite had been invited to Versailles. They were heading back into Paris when their train derailed. And many people died. And so exactly as you say, and the great thing is we can, you can find these papers. This is all there in the literature. Axle science, so literally the science of an, of an axle, train axle, became like the hot topic of transport. So it was the equivalent of, let's say, AI in driverless cars is now because we really need to understand how these axles worked. And the key was why Kikoldi was a key thinker was he just said, let's embrace failure. So let's find a failure. He even made a museum. He called it the Black Museum of Failure, where he'd gather these fragments from disasters and inspect them. And that probably seems a familiar thing now because of forensic sciences after a crime and so on. But it, it was new then. And so that was my motivation to go to places where, again, just single places where I thought a kind of unique failure had happened. So failures of industry, I went to the city of Glasgow, failures of poverty, I went to Kinshasa, which I argue is the world's greatest economic failure of the last 100 years. And then this kind of bizarre place, the the Darien Gap, which some people will have heard of, others won't have, in between Panama and Colombia, where there's a scene of environmental failure. Again, to try and really focus just in these single cases uh, of what's going on. MIT has a lab where you can send almost any object and they will shoot it for you. And you just specify what gauge and what distance and they'll see if it can resist a, a bullet. But in, of course, in, in economics and politics, we, we don't have the ability to stress test our societal designs in, in a lab and more or less reliant on observational studies. And I think that's what you're doing here is you're looking at actual field examples of these extremes and the, and these failures and these scenarios where things are being pushed to, to the limits. And we can look at some of the cases that, that you looked at. So for instance, the refugee camp in, in Jordan, this was fascinating for me, as were the prisons, as were the, the other examples. In this world, you have this amazing group of entrepreneurs, right? They're, they're 
pretty much every single person there is an entrepreneur. I think you mentioned there's something like a 42% a startup rate. And yet, presumably in the society that they came from, they weren't entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurship was created out of necessity. And yet a lot of people will say things, they'll look at a society and, and they'll say, you know, that's an entrepreneurial society or those are entrepreneurial people. And yet it seems like they're, the entrepreneurship has a lot to do with the conditions under which people find themselves. Yeah, absolutely. One of the big kind of lessons that I took from the book is this feeling that in a way, actually, it's a good, it's one of the reasons that doing podcasts and getting the chance to talk to people in a long form sense is really valuable because what I'm about to say to some people will make me seem like kind of extreme sort of neoliberal, which I don't think the book comes out like that at all. But I I'll did, be sure to quote that. <laughs> yeah, I did see in a number of cases, also the Achenese, that the people in the villages that were hit by the 2004 tsunami, people will remember the, the footage of or, or the still photos of those beaches that were just, everything was destroyed. Anyway, the, the point is that there is something innately human about entrepreneurialism. There just is, and I'm convinced of that now. And why is that? Because it's exactly for the reason you say, if you take people and you strip them of everything, so they're left with just the basic assets that they have, their time, some skills, some kind of natural resource, they will start to trade. And in all of the places that had that experience in different ways and for different causes, the sophistication of what I saw, so currencies being invented, informal forms of lending and borrowing, sophisticated in the Zatri refugee camp yes they're sophisticated businesses so it's kind of hub and spoke system that the, the best bakery had expanded so it had its bakery right in the middle of the refugee camp and then it had small outlets all around which is kind of exactly the modern way of doing fast food and you have a central kitchen and then you put it to all the places around a city and so and many of these people were self-taught or they had adapted previous skills so First answer to your question, yes, I think the entrepreneurial spirit, the urge to better oneself through trade is absolutely there. Everyone has it, even if, if you're not involved in that kind of now, I think if something like that happened to you, you would be. But then to answer you, the second element of your question, absolutely, it completely depends on the regulatory environment and also the, the kind of assets and the ability to lay your hands on the raw materials. And that was one of the really surprising things um, about that chapter. So stepping a slight sidebar about the book is it, I hope, reveals to people the value of doing kind of what I would call old fashioned journalism, which means going there spending a few weeks meeting people, eating with them. Very often a great thing to do if, if they will permit you is to go to their place of worship with them. So I went to the mosque with the refugees in, in the Syrian refugee camp in Northern Jordan, for example, and really understanding their lives. And through that process, as I was there in Zatari, I started hearing these hushed tones about people who'd misbehaved or people who'd been sent away discovered, which I hadn't planned when I went there, and this is why I think it shows the kind of value of deep on the ground research, this twin camp, literally a twin, called Azraq, and run on completely different economic regime. I mean, you literally couldn't have made it up. One begins with A, one begins with Z. One is sort of pseudo-communistic, command and control, only a certain number of shops allowed 
out it also out in the middle of nowhere so there's very little opportunity to gather kind of raw materials from around the camp and in that place there was very limited trade and so it does show you this combination of Yes, I do think we're all entrepreneurs, but also regulation and the system in which we live matters hugely. It's fascinating, A-B test. One of the questions people would have is, which is better? And I think, you know, you come down clearly on the side of the Satari society, and you talk a bit about why that's the case and, and what the meaning that people generate from value creating work. But I think from the outside, if you were just measuring, I don't know, caloric consumption or health outcomes or, you know, the things that, that aid workers are, are specifically interested in, that they would probably fail to see any real difference. Does that say something about the way we think about aid? Most of these camps that you describe, some of them have been there for 20 years, right? There's camps in Kenya that have been around for 20 years. I, I have some friends that work in the uh, Sahrawi camp in Southern Algeria, and I think they've been there for 30, 40 years. And you know, if you look at the metrics like, I don't know, life expectancy or infant mortality or caloric consumption, all those metrics look fine, but there's generally something missing in those camps that people want. And you talk a bit about that and you talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Maybe you could go into that because if they didn't have to trade, suppose that the planners had actually predicted their needs perfectly and just given them exactly what they needed and so that they wouldn't have to do anything would would they then have the the same meaning and purpose is maybe intentionally misaligning their needs and giving them the opportunity to trade a, a way of bolstering their fulfillment yeah it's a it's a kind of key it's almost like the key questions the whole book and kind of plays out in in that chapter i can give a brief answer and then i'll dig into it and the brief answer like the vignette to remember is i actually chatted to a group of female syrian refugees and was asking them about the camps and they said actually i was saying i've discovered this new camp zatra i'm going there i've heard it's people worried about it and they said actually that's not the worst camp there's a worse one and i said oh which is it i think and i forget the name now and then i dug into it and the reason they saw it as the worst camp and answers your question perfectly, is it's one, it was a kind of emergency one that you got sent to after the aid authorities had time to set them up, where everything was provided, including all food. So you weren't allowed to cook, but you had your food provided to you. And I said, well, what was so bad with it? And they said, we had nothing to do. We had no purpose. And that's the short answer. But to go into a bit more detail, I think we face a problem And I think it's one that's really important, not just in economics, but in the wider social sciences of the risks that come with the availability of data and big data. Because what we're doing is we're shining a light on whatever we're looking at, but we're shining at like a particular frequency. And so we only see certain colours, we only see certain shapes. What I mean by that is I think you're right. If you assessed the two refugee camps in terms of health outcomes and so on, and some people actually even said to me, if you've had a major injury because of the war, you are actually better to be in Azraq. This is the more controlled camp because everything is more provided. It's sort of more of a quota system. Uh, It's a bit more equal. But when you walk around, and so, and that's really important to take into account, of course, in a situation like that, you need to worry about people at the bottom. And I did hear about, because in the more sort of capitalistic structure of camp, there's more inequality because some people 
are more skilled or some people have friends on the outside that can help them with capital. But then, so you, you've got this kind of data point and bigger picture point I'm trying to make, but then you go down there on the ground and you're right, it's an AB test. I should have called it the AZ test. That would have been, that would have been good. In, in ASRAC, you walk around and it's literally how you imagine a prison camp to be. Every tent is the same. They're all white. They're all spaced out exactly the same distance apart. And people just kind of milling around, hanging out in the shade, chatting. The employment rate there, there are some jobs that are created by the, the UN. It's 9% or around 9%. In Zartary, because of this private system as well, it's something like 63%, which compares favorably with an advanced economy. So on that metric, that, I mean, that's a hard metric, but on the softer stuff, you walk around Zartary, all the different sectors are painted different colours, that people have planted little gardens. The houses are all different shapes because people get given one size of house. And then if they do well, they buy a bit of material from someone else, but make their house bigger. They do badly. They sell a bit of material and they make their house smaller. But the most important thing, and that's why you learn about it as you're coming up through the social sciences and then probably forget about it a bit. Maslow's hierarchy of needs is just bang, hit the nail on the head. Because when I spoke to people who'd set up shops in Zartary, I made this, what you might call narrow point about we're all entrepreneurs, we all want to better ourselves. They did want to do that. They, they wanted to get more food for their family, make a bit of income. But when you sit with people and talk for a long time and you find out what it's really about, they would say, well, I moved here and suddenly I had no reputation. I'd lost my business, but I'd also lost my social standing. And the act of trade, you do one trade, it's a good trade. So you get a second trade. You do a third trade that's good, by which I mean you fulfill your promises to your buyer or seller. And you become somebody who's known as an honourable trader in the society. So this takes you to a completely different level, which is your sense of self-worth, your sense of fulfilment, all these kinds of things. And those kinds of things are literally impossible in the camp where you just do everything for people. And so that's a real key difference. And it's one I don't think we'd see when we just analyze raw data. And I think there are some parallels between what you saw there and the story you describe in Glasgow. And I know that's a different part of the book, but the, the story that you tell about the destruction of the tenements and the replacement of the tenements by what, what appeared to be more better designed, better planned, better thought out, higher quality housing environments. And there's lots of parallels, especially here in the U.S., with respect to the public housing that we've designed, which at least when it was designed, there was, there was so much optimism about the features. And, you know, it was based on the most advanced thinking and people would be around nature and towers. And I think in the U.S., most of them have turned out to be be disasters. And, and the tenements that we, we read about on the Lower East Side that were vermin infested and crowded, those were thriving communities. Do you see parallels there between what you saw in Jordan and, and what you saw in, in Glasgow? Yeah, for sure. As you say, it's a very different story, but in a way it's the, the point of looking at these kind of failed places is to flip the coin. So while somewhere like uh, Zartari or Aceh in northern Indonesia, where I go, those are places where people have had a huge test, yet they have thrived. Glasgow is in the section of the book where I'm really looking at failure. And it's a city that I think the great thing is that more people will get to know about Glasgow this year because of the COP environmental conference there in November. But 
turn of the 1900s, the sort of 1890s, 1900, arguably it's literally the best city in the world. People are writing, people from the States, from everywhere are emigrating there. It's got a kind of Silicon Valley feel about it. Why? Because of engineering and because of shipbuilding. Then loses shipbuilding through a kind of series of shocks, things like competition and technology, but also policy errors, I argue. And then they do this thing exactly as you describe of best in class, you know, going to see these amazing pieces of modernist architecture in France and then trying to import that to Glasgow and, and build it. And I think there are a couple of mistakes that, that are made. One is just a simple thing now, a building that works well in Marseille, which is where the key building they mimicked was. You've got a very different level of sunlight and rain in Glasgow less sunlight, a lot more rain. And so buildings you know, need to be appropriate. But the deeper and more important point is, and that's why there is a big parallel with what we were talking about between Zatari and Azraq, is the kind of ruthless logic of the planner's pen, which doesn't take into account human stories and, and human feelings. And so just as a, a small example, Glasgow tenements traditionally had a shop on the ground floor so pretty much everyone would live above a shop. And lots of the people that I talked to told me stories about small lending, informal lending that went on around the shop, or, and potentially even more importantly, to get the nature of the place, that if you were a, a woman and had a, a young baby and you needed to check whether it was thriving, you wouldn't go to the doctor. This is pre-NHS. Doctors were private. You had to pay for that. You'd just go to your shopkeeper and put your little baby in the in the scales. And that's just a small vignette, but there are hundreds of stories across Glasgow of what now, you know, it becomes more or less popular in the social sciences, but I think we would call social capital. So norms, traditions, non-market-based ways of interacting, of, of providing for one another. And when the planners destroyed all of the tenements, they built these big high-rises and also these external developments. And they literally didn't build a single shop or pub or communal area because they just didn't think of that. And again, it's a bit of my point about data. You need to look at all the data. They just looked at the, at the housing. So is the house bigger? Yes. Is it better? Is it cleaner? Yes. They didn't look at all the other things that make a, a neighbourhood. And that's one of the reasons, I think, in talking to people that those places did so badly and made Glasgow sink in a way from one of the best cities in Europe to its the most troubled city in Europe by the kind of mid-1960s, early 70s. Yeah, the conditions that you describe are, are pretty shocking. I think for those who are not from Scotland, are we know about it from the movies and similar types of things in, in, in Naples and other places. And certainly I'm from Philadelphia in North Philadelphia. I mean, we would have these abandoned breweries and these abandoned factories, and they were surrounded by these very closely packed two-story row homes, most of which had become dilapidated and people had moved away and you know they'd built public housing instead. And you reference social capital in a bunch of different narratives, but the Social capital that you discuss from Robert Putnam is, has to do with joining clubs and civic organizations, but the capital that you're describing in, in the Jordanian camps and in Sumatra is really you know, more about kind of economic activity or kind of market behavior. Should 
this concept of social capital be expanded to include the kind of firm formation, company formation, and kind of commercial networks that can build a community and, and fulfillment? Is the traditional definition too, too narrowly construed? It's a really good question. I don't think so. I'm not, I should say, an expert on social capitalism. It's not something I've worked on in my the more sort of academic side of the work I do. But I've just, you know, read all Putnam's work and uh, in particularly his book on democracy in Italy, where he travelled. It's also a bit of an inspiration where he travelled for years, I think 20 or 25 years, through the north of Italy, the south of Italy, and tried to collect stories, to collect narrative, and to combine that with economic data, and then to describe what was going on in Italy. And it's something that sort of ebbs and flows, and it's in how fashionable it is. But, you know, Robert Schiller recently got his book on how economic narrative is really key, you know, and he's somebody who essentially got the Nobel Prize for doing very numbers-based asset pricing. So I think people are starting to see the importance of these slightly more nebulous or softer parts of, of economics. To answer your question precisely, I think we're okay in terms of the startup or productivity per worker or any of these key metrics we have. They're, they're pretty good definitions. I think the definitions um, of social capital that are there in the literature are clear, if hard to measure. So it's things like trust, reciprocity, norms, traditions, non-financial lending and sharing of things. I think what is missing is the kind of admission from that stuff into more mainstream economics. And... There's lots of reasons it, it doesn't happen. Some of it's to do with people's kind of political ideology. Some of it's to do with the fact that, it, again, it's hard to measure. So why would you include it in your model? And my having been to these places now and thought about it, I just argue and think that it's, it's just literally unanswerable that social capital has an implication on economic output. And the simple answer I use now with colleagues because I did have a bit of pushback with colleagues chatting about this. The, the, the simple example I use with colleagues is the intensity with which you use a factor of production. Going to the jargon a bit now, as economists, we tend to think factors of production, things like capital, labour, so machines, factories, and our time, go into the production function. So what makes the output of an economy? If you're in a society where you, and this is a point partner makes, you freely lend tools. So you live in a village in Italy where there's this kind of common tool shed, or actually it's your neighbor's tool shed to be precise. So it's privately owned tools, but you know there's a culture that you can just go to the tool shed and borrow that tool and use it to do whatever you're doing. Well, then that tool, which is a piece of capital, is used more intensively and your labor is used more effectively. And those two, just that simple idea would fit straight into an economics production function and is, I think, why we need to take this stuff more seriously. And the reason we need to take it more seriously is, again, going back to this slight concern, and I'm somebody who uses big data a lot in in my kind of day-to-day research with our kind of focus on large instant access, real-time data sets and so on, because none of that stuff picks up this softer, cultural, traditional form of resilience and form of um, capital. And so then what you have is decisions like the ones the Glasgow government took, the city, Glasgow City Council, 
like those that are made sometimes by the aid community and like like the problems that we see building up in big time in Santiago, which is the last chapter in the book, it's all about inequality in Chile, this damage that we can do to an economy when we don't value that stuff properly. Yeah. You talk about social capital, you talk about physical capital. And uh, I think at one point when you're describing the Sumatran event, the Aceh event, you, you said that, you know, it's the ideas, the skills, and the uh, things that reside within the the human brain and spirit, which are the things that you rely on in these extreme scenarios where every asset is destroyed. And you distinguish that, of course, from social capital, which is about these networks of, of trust. In Silicon Valley, you talk about agglomeration externalities from Marshall. I think in Silicon Valley, it's really all about these social capital is what makes us so strong out here. The amount of sharing, the amount of community, the amount of networks, the amount of trust that exists within these networks is really the strength of Silicon Valley. Yeah, it's those processes, those traits I was discussing are, I mean, I've never lived in, uh, in California, but um, seeing some of the things that come from Silicon Valley, from the sort of tech scene, by which I mean things like open source coding, right? So that what's going on there is you're explicitly saying, listen, I've done some hard work here. You guys can have it. But there is an idea of reciprocity, which is next time I'm stuck late at night trying to get my model to solve, I'll be able to look up and that everyone else is posting their code and we'll be able to, to find something interesting. It is different. I do think that the spirit is different. I think the American spirit is slightly different on this to, to that in Europe. I had a, just a small personal vignette, completely different from the book. I was on Clubhouse the other day, which I recently joined, listening to some stuff about genetic testing. I have a son with a very rare genetic disorder. It's a whole other story. But I just mentioned this on the stage. And just the number of people that gave advice, got in touch, and I mentioned I was an economist and then asked me for my advice on this thing, all completely, one can get skeptical about social media platforms. We always have to bear that in mind, but all completely with no pecuniary, no financial angle, just literally, I've got some information, it might help you. I'm here because people will probably also give me information those that is social capital as Putnam would would see it based on his writing so yeah i think you're right on that and then the, the question is how can we better harness it because and that's the interesting thing and that's when it gets more into sort of political economy which people duck a bit these days but for me it's the the most interesting part of economics so on the right or more liberal side you might say should we even mess with this is this the sort of thing that's best flowering on its own or is there a role for the state to play and then in in the uk certainly the reason why this has become unpopular as an idea is it's seen as well hold on if we're saying social capital is really important then maybe what we can do is we can lower the social safety net so that's the kind of accusation from the left you know you guys rely on social capital in your politics so you're going to provide a threadbare NHS and a threadbare social security system because you want to let people rely on themselves. And so both sides of the two-party system, you know, which both our countries share, find it a little bit difficult to deal with, I think. You know, one of the questions that came up when I was reading about some of the cases, particularly the refugee case, is there a value to disrupting old hierarchies? So I don't think anybody would advocate that we have a civil war and create refugees and so forth. 
but so many new kind of companies and new ideas come from disruption. So many companies in the United States were founded by people who were, were refugees or were fleeing a conflict, fleeing oppression. Is there a danger that when an organization or society is becomes too stable, that it chokes off some innovation. If you have a you know, legacy enterprise or you know, a certain level of comfort or a certain type of social capital, that it stultifies the emergence of new networks and new forms of reputation and new companies. I, I was sort of, you know, in the back of my mind, I was wondering if these folks who are in the refugee camps, if they do go back to their homes, will they go back with a different approach to, to things in the way that some of the prisoners who are released from Angola went back to their communities with some positive or some strength that came from this disruption. Two thoughts on this. The first one, again, is to not be rose-tinted and overly kind of optimistic that the world's always going to become a better place about this. So one of the points that I noted, particularly about the people that lived in the area of northern Indonesia, Aceh, where, whichever, where everything had been wiped away. I mean, the rebuild there is truly incredible, what they managed to do, and much of it through... Build back better. Build back, yeah, but that was the aid workers' mantra, as it always is, that these guys started building back better, and that was very important, but, but so many of the stories in that chapter about people who've just, with their own ingenuity, built back better. One thing tempers that, or is the, the wrinkle in the... Let's wipe everything away and start anew. And that's the, the guy who was the biggest coffee shop owner. And he owned this, like the kind of Starbucks of actually where all the politicians go and so on. An amazing gentleman. He ended up with that job again because he had the contacts for the coffee. He knew how to do it. He was able to raise the finance. Lots of people were doing new things, but a noticeable amount of people were doing exactly the same thing they'd done before. Tiny sidebar on that, I think that in itself is something about human resilience. And for me, people are always, economists are always asked to forecast. And so I'm sometimes asked to say, oh, what's going to happen after COVID-19? Is it going to completely change what everything does? For a lot of people, they will think, damn you, virus, I'm going to do exactly what I was doing before. And I'm literally in the same spot, same job, same spot, same house. That's the first part. The second answer is, Actually, I considered coming to Silicon Valley as one of my extremes because um, and we haven't talked about it yet, but I wanted to do something on, on technology. Clearly, it's affecting all of our lives. And the latter part of the book is to try and take lessons from these kind of odd, really extreme, but places most of us will never go and actually go to some more regular, you might call it, economies and, and look at some of the extremes we will all certainly face, one of which being software and technology, but I didn't. And instead I went to Tallinn, Estonia. And that's a fascinating place that has a completely fresh start. And it has a fresh start because of the, de the demise of the USSR. And it's a country that because of language barriers, is one of the things that was explained to me while I was there, Estonian being so far away from Russian in its roots, in the family tree of languages, they're not cousins, they're different families basically. Estonia fared quite badly. And so when the new country started, there was mistrust of anyone who'd been involved in the old regime. There was mistrust of everything that had gone before. And it really was seen as a fresh start. And, and, and there, there, I think I have a line in, in the book there about this initial parliament had, had chemists and doctors and a comedian and playwrights. It was literally how you'd want to set up a kind of politics with a mi real mixture of people. But what they did is they took a lot of chances 
and really started anew. One of the chances they took was on technology and it's paid back many times over. So, yeah, so long answer. Like in some places, yes, a clear start does give you a chance to, to get rid of the old baggage. But we, I think as humans, do have a tendency to be sort of path dependent and go back down a path we, we know our way down. And of course, one of the stories in, the, in Glasgow is about how the Japanese and, and the Germans were able to build ships in a new fashion, which made the old fashion obsolete. And that's because they more or less started from a clean slate and the Glaswegians were trapped by their older technology. Yeah, for sure. And that is really, really big explanation of what's going on there. And just to give listeners a picture and a description and viewers maybe a, a picture in Glasgow, People were still building ships on the side of a river, literally on the side of a river, so that nothing was on the level, right? So we've all done DIY at home and got out our spirit level to try and make things level. Nothing's on the level. The ship is being built like this. And that means everything has to be done with a specific tool. In addition to your normal tools, you have a specific tool called the in incline device which offsets it and makes it level and makes everything end up square and when you finish the ship you literally knock away the wooden things below it and it slips down into the river in germany and japan their shipyards have been completely destroyed and so they started again and so what they did is the the idea of the large dry dock so you you build a hole in the ground next to the river you can build a much much bigger ship and then you just knock down the wall of the river and the ship sinks up everything's on the level the economies of scale are huge and Britain in general, other rivers around Britain, but the Clyde in particular and Glasgow really suffered from this. They had dotted along. It is a prime example that we might teach in business school of a, a lack of economies of scale because you have all these different production centres using outdated technology versus one or not one, but a number of huge Japanese yards using the most modern technology. I'd love to have the solution was just to combine the companies without combining the shipyards. Yeah, and just a, a very small tangent on that one. If anybody's interested in that, anybody's interested in um, industrial history or, or anyone, in, particularly in business school, just Google Sean Connery, as in the guy who was James Bond, the bowler and the bonnet. So the bowler hat was the hat that the financiers would wear, the capitalists. The bonnet was the hat that the workers would wear. And this is Sean Connery's only ever venture into journalism where he makes a documentary. He's literally behind the camera and he looks at this example called Upper Clyde Shipbuilders. And exactly as you say, Greg, the idea was, and now we can look at it and just say, that. why did you think that was going to work? They, would, they just merged the sites and said, okay, you're all the same company. They didn't actually do anything to the underlying technology. They didn't actually create one big shipyard. They just said, okay, you guys will work together. And obviously, with, with the benefit of hindsight, it didn't work. But it's a great documentary. I think all of the chapters were really incredibly readable and unputdownable. But the, the chapter on, on Kinshasa was one that was that really stuck with me. And I've read quite a few books on Africa, but you really highlight the, the path dependence there and how a country can get stuck in this kind of low-level equilibrium trap. You say that maybe it's not appropriate to call this a failed state because the state, or at least the, the people who affiliate themselves with the state are represent quite a large portion of the population and are, are not thriving any less than the rest of the people in, in the society. What attracted you to Kinshasa and, and what was it like to do your research there? 
what attracted me to Kinshasa was the, I started out, as I described, as we discussed at the start, wanting to look at failure because of David Kirkcaldy. I literally wrote down a list of failures you could have. Clearly one is poverty. I think, I don't think there's much argument you can have against that. And then once I had the themes, all these kind of different themes, I actually chose the places through quite a quantitative process. And so in the start of each chapter, I've explained to the reader, listen, you might think that this is the most interesting example, say, of tech. That's the one I really had to establish. But actually, read about Estonia, not about Kimbani, say. And so on many metrics, Kinshasa is the world's biggest economic failure. So just take its assets so that now if we were given a blank sheet of paper as economists or or, any, or people studying business we'd say okay this place is going to thrive so city of 10 million people speaks a europe a major european language namely french is on a time zone time zones are beneficial aligned with mainland europe the natural assets in terms of hardwoods in terms of copper and rare metals that we use in mobile phones each of these things individually should make for a great city. The Congo River is potentially the site of the best hydroelectric um, system in the world. And yet it's just rock bottom in terms of major cities, in terms of the poverty level. And so I just thought, you know, I can't duck it. I've got to go there. In short, it was very hard. The governments are not hugely keen on journalists or really anyone visiting that hasn't got a kind of clear business purpose so it's it's very hard to get in you need to take some time to get the right accreditations and so on the people are incredible we're incredibly hospitable it was another place where I, i was invited just to give a metric of that i was invited to to go and eat on a sunday and to go to church very strongly roman catholic country and so into these churches. And when I say church, it's just corrugated iron, tin shack. It, it's, it's a city of 10 million people, but it, the whole place, apart from one thin strip where the embassies are and a couple of hotels are, it's like essentially a shanty town, self-constructed. And it, just to give another vignette of what it's like, you've got the Congo River there. Okay, so the Congo River is second to the Amazon in terms of flow. And you've got no water in the city. And so you have people walking around. One of the things you do when you um, drop out of school, which most young people do, is you go around the city with um, a bucket on your head and in it, it has these plastic bags tied full of clean water because this is a city that's on the world's second fastest flowing river and has no water, no reliable electricity. So just a a litany um, of failures and, and really important place to go and understand in a bit more detail, exactly what had gone wrong in that city, which is something we don't really hear of. Sometimes you hear of violence in the east of the Congo, and particularly on the border with Rwanda. Very rarely hear anything about Kinshasa itself, which is this, this mega city, this like hidden mega city. If you think about contrasting it with what was going on in the refugee camps, right, Atari in, in Jordan, you know, that was something of a stateless community as well, right? Not completely stateless. And so, and there was a difference certainly in that there was a massive injection of of aid into the community to provide at least something to trade. But in terms of the social capital, what accounts for the state of social capital? You talk a bit about how some of these traders are, are forming 
you know, cooperatives or, or guilds, or at least trying to, so that they can counter the predations of the state and their employees. But what accounts for the, the kind of weakness of social capital? People are very entrepreneurial. People are extraordinarily improvisational, not just the, the private sector, but the folks who are the employees of the state, they too are very entrepreneurial in their efforts. Is it something about the nature of the dysfunctionality of the state that makes it worse than having uh, a state that's sort of just in the, in the background like you have in the refugee camps? Well, you could do a whole podcast and maybe one, one day I'll get an opportunity to do it on Kinshasa because it's just, it's so fascinating and this stuff runs so deep. But just in brief, when you have to just throw out everything you understand about economics and about the terms we use. And that's really important because if you don't, you get the moral picture wrong because a lot of the terms we use are morally loaded. So just to give an example of that, and then I'll come to, to your question because it's really important. Taxation is like something none of us will ever experience and none of us will ever understand. Most of the traders on the street or in the formal markets or around the formal markets will be taxed twice a day. So daily taxation. And with that taxation will come a need for some sort of extra bung. So if you're a food producer, the tax collector will come morning and afternoon and they will expect, as they put it to me in French, a bon prix. So a good price by which they mean free. So I'd like a free croissant or whatever it is. And so really it's taxation in triplicate daily. So that's, you know, already you're thinking, wow, this is like nothing I've ever uh, seen before. But the opinion and the approach to the public servants who are doing this, so you have to pay policemen on the streets to get through the streets. You have to pay for your school certificates if you want them around graduation. So graduation becomes a sudden time where you as a, as a teacher are able to extract money from people by charging them for your prison certificates. And when, on the first few days when you're there, you think, oh, this is terrible. These people are so corrupt. These state employees are so corrupt. But the point is that the, the public know that they are not being paid properly and often not paid at all. Often they have nine or 10 months in lieu. And so they are often voluntarily paying. And when you make that payment to the police officer, you can give 2,000 comrades, right? Or you, or you can give 500. And it's a little bit up to you. And if you've really got no money, you can say, no, go away, I'm not going to pay you. And so it's not quite corruption, actually. It's the way I came to understand it and wrote about it in the book. It's the informal privatization of essentially a collapsing civil service. In a way, it's a market economy taken to an extreme, right? It is. Where you it's, have that's exactly. micro services of your public services are provided in little micro doses, right? Exactly. And all of the econ 101 game theory that we learn as econ undergraduates or business school about how incentives matter, how the balance of power matters, just play out. As I mentioned, through the year, it's tough for teachers, but then suddenly kind of June, July, when I was there, parents really want their kids to have their certificate. They finished high school and suddenly the teachers are riding high because they can say, we've got to pay for that. And they have a, an opportunity to, to reap that market. The problem with this, and in some sense, that's how people get by. That's the Kinshasa way. The problem with it, as you drive around, and again, this is the sort of thing that, uh, and walk around that, that it just, there's, you have to get the feeling of a place. 
I realized after I've been there for a couple of weeks, it's a village. It's not a city. It's, it's a village. It's just a village that goes on for miles and miles and miles. And what, what I mean by that is that the infrastructure is of a village. It's just a normal small road joining one place to the next. It's just that one place joins to 150 in this direction, 150 in that direction. And so to give a more uh, formal economic diagnosis, the problem is there's just a fundamental lack of investment in infrastructure. It takes you forever to do anything and that's going to harm an economy. And just as just a, a small example of that, to get from Kinshasa down to Lubumbashi, which is the second main city, rather than going overland through this country, which again should be one of the richest in Africa, if not the richest, that you go to the sea, you go west, you then export the goods, go through Angola and then go across land and then back into your own country. So you're exporting, going overland, much longer overland and then back in just because the infrastructure to go through the country itself is so bad. Yeah. So the, the public goods provision is not happening at the macro level, but it's also not, re it's not really happening at the micro level. Attempts to build small fixed infrastructure ultimately gets defeated. I have a lot of friends who are in uh, Russia and Russia is certainly by no means anything like like the Congo in terms of its political instability. But they say that if you're going to start a business, it's best not to have any inventory. It's best to have the ability to pick up and, and go on the fly. And that helps you uh, resist any kind of seizures on the part of the police. On the other hand, to get back to the Tallinn story, I just had lunch with someone from Moscow and he said that when he came to America and he, he had to renew his driver's license, he was astonished. And he said that the American DMV resembles the old Soviet DMV and the one that they have now in Moscow is extraordinarily technologically sophisticated. Yeah, that is interesting, that point about inventory, because it reminds me of something. And again, it's it's like when you when you go to places and you see something, which is just an image, actually, and wouldn't get picked up in any kind of, you know, formal report uh, or data, but you just see something, you hold on, that tells me something about this place, is that they have um, fantastic tailors. The Congolese have brilliant, bright and very sharp suits. But when you're not working, and they have old sort of fashioned sewing machines, when they're not working, they have these special tables where you can flip the sewing machine up and out so that it's in this kind of broken position. And then you sit back on your chair and it's to prove, as I mentioned, you're getting taxed twice or three times a day. It's when the taxman comes past, if your machine is in the working position, he might say, ah, I know you're working on some shirts. I want some tax. And so you have to prove by actually temporarily breaking your machinery that you're not working. And it, it, that, that, that sounds to me like a kind of parallel with, with the points about inventory. Yeah. And in early modern France, all the villagers would hide their valuables when the, the, there was a, a lot of villages in early modern France, they had a bell tower. And when the tax man was coming down the road, they would ring the bell and everybody would, would bury their plate and everything else. You had advance warning. The last, we barely touched on the book, the story about Santiago with which you, you end the book. I think you chose to end the book with Santiago because it raises the issue of inequality on some countries it's going down, but in most countries it appears to be going up. Some would argue that it's a necessary stage and it's when countries develop, they're going to see this Gini coefficient go up. You describe a, a world where the 
society is is being pulled apart by these different levels of income. And in a way, this is a success story. In a way, it's a troublesome story. Do you think that Santiago has lessons for the rest of us, for other countries? Yes, certainly. The motivation is exactly as you say. With just a, a slight edit, which is, I'd say that what we see across the world is often in places high inequality. And I would characterize the US and the UK as that, or relatively high. But big picture and people who really focus on on inequality and it's their kind of main area of research will, will probably shriek when i say this but big picture it's it's kind of stable it went up in the 70s and 80s and in the uk in the last couple of measures of the Gini coefficient or three or four it's actually gone down a bit but it's big picture it's high and like more or less a flat line the last section of the book is all about trying to kick it forward and trying to understand pressures that we will all face or that more of us will start to face. And so I wanted to look at, and what we do see with inequality is that the newest group of kind of most exciting countries. So we have, you know, the BRIC countries, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. Now people often talk about the frontier economies, which include places like Kenya and Nigeria. These places, and particularly the capital cities of these places, are becoming some of the most unequal in the world. And if you look at the Gini coefficient for those places, they're kind of going like like this, depending on which way you're looking. It's going up. And that raises a big question about how people see and value economic growth. And so if you want to answer that, look at that question in detail, there's no better place to go than Santiago, because not only was it this country that uh, was the first EME, first Latin American country to join the OECD, first to officially get go from emerging market status to advanced country status. The IMF starts writing about the lessons we should learn from Chile. But on top of all that, you have Milton Friedman and the kind of Chicago experiment there, or rather the, not strictly speaking, Milton Friedman, but people that studied with him who went back and worked there. And so you have this really clear application of liberal market-based economics to an economy and and the outcomes that flow. And what I hope comes across from the whole book, really, and particularly from this chapter, is that the corners you try to get pushed into as a writer, if I had any kind of criticism from people, lots of people have have written to me and and in terms of reviews and stuff, the book's done well. But where I did have a bit of criticism occasionally was, where exactly do you come out on this? And the point is, I I don't want to, and I don't think it's my role as somebody to go to one place and to say, okay, I'm a typical blogger or tweeter. I've got you this three lessons from Santiago. This is a rich, you know, there's 250 years of history here. But what I do know is that it's just fundamentally difficult because two things. First, that different camps will not like. If you go, like I did, and actually live with the people and actually walk around with them, you will find plenty of very poor people who think that Milton Friedman, they don't know for Milton Friedman, but they think that the the policies are absolutely brilliant. Why is that? Because they remember moving to Santiago as young children and living in shanty towns. And they would literally say to me, look at me, I have shoes on my feet, I have a house. So the truth is, 
and this is uncomfortable for some groups that, that write about economics, that growth, the type of growth that Chile has seen, really does raise the position of people at the bottom. It, it just does. The data show that. And also, if you go to someone like that and talk to people, you'll see that. But, and this is why you get pushed and you have to say, listen, it, it's not that easy. On the other side of the argument, inequality is so high there that it essentially breaks down the market mechanism. And, and this is the argument I try to explain in the book, which is that even if you're a liberal, or the UK would say a sort of very right-wing thinker, and you say, I don't care about inequality, okay? I just care about opportunity. I don't care about equality of outcomes at all. An economy like that breaks down your free market notions. And the vignette or the idea I like listeners to take away is the market for pharmaceuticals, where some people are so poor within Santiago that it's not worth setting up. So it's a free market. Everything in Chile is pretty much free market. So it's provided by firms. The people are so poor that it's not worth you setting up there. And so the outcome of that is that people in the very poorest areas travel to the rich areas to buy basic things like aspirin, diapers, that kind of stuff. And so you end up with poor people pay a much higher price than rich people. And again, chatting to people about things and, and with friends, I just put that to you. That is not how capitalism or economics is supposed to work, right? You're supposed to have lead. When the market clears, you have cheap products for, for people with low income and you have special high-end products for those with more. Inequality in Santiago manages to flip this on its head so that the poor end up paying more. And so I think both things are true. Growth and those liberal policies hugely benefited people, but, but the inequality is certainly at the heart of the rioting. I went before the riots and talked about, you know, I was worried about this city before the most recent riots that we've seen recently. And if I'm right on that, and if this trend is also pre prevalent in Lagos, for example, then it's something to be worried about. Yeah. One of the things you highlight also is that the concentration level in so many different industries is, is quite low. And I wonder if that's an artifact of the, the size of the economy. And maybe if a country like Nigeria would be less, less concerned because it's such a, a larger economy, it may support a lower concentration of producers and thereby lead to more competition. There's a really good argument that the sort of best argument back against the idea that the, the kind of Friedmanite policies have failed. And I say that as a huge fan of Milton Friedman. This is somebody who studied monetary policy. One of his 1967 papers is like the benchmark of, of how we think in central banking. So this is not a criticism of Friedman in, a, in any sense. He's a giant of our subject. But that this is a, this is an example. He famously said, you judge judged by the results, and the, and the results are not good. Now, in his favour, or in free market failure, it is definitely true that competition policy, or antitrust, as you'd say, has been applied terribly in Chile. They've had cartels on everything from chicken, bathroom paper, books, textbooks, those are consumer goods that matter to people, but then really important things like the pharmaceutical market, like the pension system. And so one argument is actually what needs to happen there is more free market, smash these big ol oligopolies, 
the argument then back against that is that, and everybody tells you this in, in Santiago, is that wealth has got so um, high that there are families. Some people say it's three families. Some people say it's seven families. People have a different number whose dynastic wealth essentially means they own either directly or through networks or the conglomerates. So even if you split things up, there wouldn't be competition. And some some evidence for the US shows that those things are important. You need to worry about ownership of firms, not just the fact that you've got two different... You mentioned money, and it's too bad we didn't have a chance to talk about the, the monetary system in, in Angola, Louisiana, because that is also a fascinating topic and one that I'm very uh, interested in and how it uh, emerged. But I want to end by asking you about... So if you want to learn about the dots read the book. It's a great story. I usually start off my course on blockchain with a history of uh, money. And I talk about mackerel and ramen noodles and and cigarettes, but I haven't talked about the dots. So I'm going to have to incorporate that. But I wanted to ask you what the economics observatory is uh, and what is this? What's your role? And is this a unique thing? Are there other countries that have something similar or is this something that's, that's brand new? It's brand new for the UK. So what it is, it, it was launched in the wake, the immediate months after the onset of the, the COVID epidemic, a bunch of um, professors in the UK were called on to advise, either formally or informally, the our finance ministry and our central bank, and, and actually all our, you know all, all parts of government. Essentially, because what we're going through, or what we um, were going through a year ago, is completely unique, literally completely unique. So as an example, I was a central banker during or working as an economist in a central bank during the previous financial crisis. In a literal sense, i.e. we had calls with the Bank of Japan, we were able to borrow from the copybook of a country that had a systemic banking crisis and then had to do quantitative easing and zero rates, zero interest rates for a long time. So we, without, and, and there was Ben Bernanke's work and so on, but there was a large, bo- it was a huge crash, but there was a large body of stuff that you could borrow from and get advice from. This was completely new. And what the observatory tries to do, this is a cross-industry pandemic. It affects people of different generations. It affects genders differently. It affects all different parts of the economy. Is to go out and talk to academics who are doing the latest work on each of these issues. So labor market economics, financial economics, the economics of food, the economics of gender bias in the workplace, environmental economics, and tries to distill that down. This goes back to the conversation we had right at the start, Greg, which is that, and this is not a criticism because this is how you make progress, but as a leading edge academic, you're toiling often in a quite a narrow place to just move that frontier of knowledge forward. Whereas sitting in a finance ministry or a central bank, which is my background, you, you need a bit of a broader picture. You need to be able to go, to go and advise that policymaker, listen, the balance of the evidence. So in a way, you could say it's a little bit like a think tank. It's an attempt to be a kind of baby nascent Brookings or, or something like that. But the reason it's different is it, it's an effort, a joint effort by the academic community. So our members are all the UK universities we bring together their work and then try and take it to the policy-making bodies, both in Westminster, but also in Cardiff, Edinburgh and Belfast, so through the devolved nations, and try and help them as they're facing these huge questions that we're all living through. 
And if people would like, I should do an advert, if people would like to read any of our stuff, because lots of it applies, and we have loads of US academics writing for us, it's economicsobservatory, or one word, dot com. I wish we had something like that in the US at the beginning of our pandemic that could provide integrated perspectives on how to deal with the, the crisis. I think we did a lot of trial and error and a lot of back and forth and a little um, bit of short-term decision-making and not really strategic, but that's for another conversation. In the meantime, check out this book, Extreme Economies. And you've got Andrew Jackson in here. I, I'm not sure exactly why he's here. Most of the times when I go abroad and I see uh, cash, it's Ben Franklin that I see. I don't see too many of uh, Andrew Jackson, but wonderful book. Thank you so much, Richard, for, for being on the show. Hope we'll talk again soon. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Greg. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Mm-hmm.